Hello, I'm Oliver Colling, and this is my 70s TV childhood. Hello, and a warm welcome back to my 70s TV childhood, the podcast that's dedicated to taking you back to Britain in the 1970s and remembering what it was like to be a child then and how important television was in our lives and in our families' lives as well. It was a time when we gathered around our televisions with screens no bigger than about 20 inches to watch one of three channels, sometimes in black and white, and often on a rented TV set. I mean, we had a succession of Radio Rentals Baird-branded TVs during the 1970s. Well, to be entirely accurate, when I say a succession, we had two. We had a black and white one, followed by our first colour TV set in 1977. The whole experience of watching TV then was very different. There was no catch-up service, no video recorders. And to watch a show, you had to be there at the right time in front of the box. Otherwise, you missed it. TV shows were a huge talking point for me and my friends at school, our parents in the workplace, and for society as a whole. As we mentioned before on the podcast, viewing figures for popular shows in the 1970s were huge, reflecting the power that TV held over us. And it certainly forms the basis of many memories I have of childhood. Now, don't get me wrong, I didn't watch TV all the time, but I did love to watch TV. There is a subtle difference there. It gave me a window onto a whole new world that seemed a long way from Warrington in the northwest of England, where I grew up. If you're new to the podcast, then a very warm welcome to you. And if you're one of our many regular listeners, then thank you for your continued support. Without you, there wouldn't be a podcast. Thanks, as always, for all of those who've been in touch or left reviews with your podcast provider. It's really great to hear from you and to know we're hitting the right buttons, inspiring memories of happy times growing up. Particular thanks to those who've responded to our corrections and confessions feature. If you haven't heard about it, here's a reminder of how it works. We love hearing from you here at My 70s TV Childhood. Hearing your memories of how the show has made you think of your childhood TV favourites is one of the most rewarding parts of making this podcast. But I need your help. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that I try and recall things from memory. And, given the 1970s was a long time ago, I can sometimes, how should I put it, misremember things. And that's where I need you to help me. When you hear me plainly getting it wrong, I'd like you to send me a correction along with your own favourite 70s TV show or your childhood confessions. The more corrections and confessions, the better. And I'll feature some of them in future episodes. Send your corrections and confessions to corrections at my70stvchildhood.com I would love to say in true 70s style, answers on a postcard, please. But in a concession to the 21st century, let's just say answers on an email instead. Thank you and look forward to hearing from you. Anyway, on with this episode. And I have to say, I'm feeling very excited. It's something to do with the time of year. Well, if you're listening to this whilst binging old episodes, then it may not mean quite as much, but bear with me. Yes, at the time of recording, it's the summer here in the UK. And in spite of the fact that I left school almost 40 years ago, I still get that end of term, pre-summer holidays feeling. The weather's better, hopefully. We're allowed to play on the school playing field at playtime. 
We keep asking the teacher to have lessons outside almost always without success. And it's almost time to bring in toys and games for the last day of term. I think that the end of term in primary school was probably the most exciting time. And we were not afraid to show it. By the time you get to 13 or 14, it doesn't matter how excited you really are about the summer holidays. You have to be pretty nonchalant and cool about it. So, you're looking forward to the summer holidays? Yeah, suppose so, whatevs. Suppose I have to go on holiday with my parents. Uh, anyway, but back at primary school, the prospect of six weeks' holiday stretching into the distance seemed like an eternity of playtime and fun, as well as a chance to go somewhere different on holiday. Now, some of you may be thinking, didn't we cover this in our previous episodes, Summer in the 70s from 2021? Well, yes, correct if you spotted that or and or remembered. But I do think it's worth revisiting, not only because of the excitement of reliving the summer holidays, but also because many of the TV memories that listeners have shared are focused on the TV shows that were shown during school holidays, especially during the summer. We talked about lots of the imported shows that the BBC used to trot out every school holiday between 1960 and the mid-80s, and here's a quick reminder of a couple of them. Those, those kind of live-action shows were very meaningful, and I think more, more than anything, looking back, it, some of the black-and-white shows also instilled a foreign, you know, a, an appreciation for foreign lands and gave me you know, uh, that first kind of insight into what it would be like you know, living somewhere else or hearing different accents or you know, what travelling what traveling would look like in the wider world. There are three shows which really did that for me, the first of which was Bell and Sebastian, which was, you know, only 13 episodes uh, made, but had this, you know, had these gorgeous black and white sequences of the mountains in, in the French Alps, which instilled in me a, a love of the mountains, which really never left. The French accents, you know, so, so different. The soft, soft focus in the way that it was shot. A lot of knitwear, I remember, a lot of scarves and, and funny jumpers. The White Horses was very similar as well. And I was very captured by the theme music. Uh, as I think many people were, many people can recite, you know, the, the theme tune. Oh, that's lovely, lovely memories. And the uh, yes, the theme tune to White Horses, I remember that very well. La, 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 la. I've no idea what happened in any of the episodes. No, I, I know none of the storylines. Um, I, I can picture the girl and her uncle who ran the stud farm. I did. I did pull out the lyrics though to White Horses. If you want to, if you want to hear those, because these will. These will take you back. Um, Absolutely. And, and, and you'll hear the theme tune in your head as I'm saying them. <laughs> Hopefully. On white horses, let me ride away to my world of dreams so far away. Let me run to the sun. <laughs> so when I can only see the grey of a sad and very lonely day, that's when I softly sigh. On white horses, snowy white horses, let me ride away. <laughs> it's great. Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. As I say, I can imagine all of our listeners, the, the tune will be going through their heads now, probably for the rest of the day. Yeah, probably best I don't sing it. But there is one show which we didn't spend much time on, which has come up again and again in your comments, messages and emails, which seems to sum up 70s childhood TV memories more than any. It's another foreign production dubbed into English, and there are no prizes for guessing what it is.
Just hearing that music takes me back in time. I was seven years old. It's the first day of the school holidays. I was sitting on the carpet in front of the television, probably arguing with my sister, and after nogging the nog or something or similar, I'm transfixed and transported to an exotic desert island and the adventures of Robinson Crusoe. No preamble or introductory scene, just straight into that music and onto the action. Our hero shipwrecked on a desert island and his efforts to survive. It was exciting, actually quite violent in places, and managed to be enthralling, despite most of the series featuring Robinson Crusoe alone on the island struggling to survive, but also, by way of flashbacks, telling the story of his life and how he came to end up on the Esmeralda, the ship that was shipwrecked in the first episode. Now, this is yet another show that I loved, and I have done something I don't normally do, and have rewatched a couple of episodes from the series for the first time in over 40 years. Regular listeners will know that I try and keep most of my recollections as just that, i.e. what I remember about watching a show at the time. But in this case, I decided to take a risk, and do you know what? I've not been disappointed. It's still pretty good. The first episode was incredibly dramatic even in black and white. Obviously, when I first saw this, I didn't know whether it was in black or white or in colour, as we had a black and white TV set uh, hired from Radio Rentals, as I mentioned earlier. The early scenes of a terrible storm and then the shipwreck are actually quite convincing, and could have been a bit scary for small children, although I have no memory of being frightened at the time. I suppose today it would have to come with one of those mild terror warnings we get in the cinema, but not back then. The whole narrative style was pretty engaging too, as the series was dubbed, having been originally made in French and German. And much of the storytelling came in a first-person narrative from Robinson Crusoe himself, played by Robert Hoffman, a handsome, clean-cut, blonde Austrian actor, in his first major role. The supposedly English character of Crusoe was voiced by Lee Payant, an American actor based in Paris, who did a great job, despite obviously being an American pretending to be British. The other striking things for episode one were the fabulous location, which was totally credible as a deserted desert island. And, as I mentioned earlier, the level of violence involved, which I have to say I didn't remember either. The series was mainly filmed in Gran Canaria, with the scenes supposedly in Brazil being shot in the small inland village of Tejeda in the middle of Gran Canaria. The opening episode also contains flashbacks to Crusoe's earlier life in York, which made me laugh, given that I live near York now, and the Normandy coastline where the York and later Hull scenes were shot bears very little resemblance to the real thing. Oh yes, and the violence in the first episode involves Crusoe getting caught up in a shootout between some smugglers and the King's men on the beach at York. Again, slightly amusing given how far inland York is, but let's not get too picky about it. Gunfights, smugglers being shot dead, and crowds of soldiers all firing as they ran across the beach. No wonder I was transfixed as a child. The 25 minutes or so of episode one just flew by. As I mentioned earlier, the show was a French-German co-production made by Franco-London Films based in Paris. It was first shown in Germany in October 1964 as four 90-minute episodes, and was also broadcast in the US later that year. In 1965, it was converted into a 13-part serial for British audiences and, really importantly, was given a new soundtrack composed by Robert Mellon and Giampiero Riverberry. 
as it was felt that the original soundtrack was too Germanic for UK audiences. Well, thank goodness they did that, as the music really is the icing on the cake for me. Not just the iconic theme tune, but all of the incidental music works really well. The pacing of it, and just listening to the theme, makes me picture the waves rolling onto that deserted sandy beach on the desert island. Absolutely brilliant. The BBC bought the rights in 1965, and they certainly made sure they got their money's worth, as they showed the series almost every school holidays between then and the early 1980s, when their deal ran out. Presumably Robert Hoffman got repeat fees every time it was shown. I can imagine him sitting in Salzburg, hearing the post coming through the letterbox and thinking, great, must be school holidays in Britain again. Time for me to get a huge cheque and buy a ski chalet or lots of sausages or whatever Austrians aspire to spend their money on. Anyway, back to the show itself. As the episodes went on, Robinson builds himself a shelter. He finds the Esmeralda ship's dog, Dick, who he looks after and who becomes his faithful companion. He also manages to acquire a goat and a parrot, who all become part of his little island family. And as he realises that he is alone on the island and trapped, he builds more things and furniture and eventually moves into a cave. Now, if you don't remember the show, you must be thinking, how on earth did this stretch out to 13 episodes? But a very clever thing about the way it was put together was that roughly half the episode dealt with his tribulations on the island, and half with flashbacks to his former life, which was all pretty exciting, ranging from his youthful days in York, finding a ship in Hull to take him abroad, being captured en route by pirates and then sold into slavery, through to ending up running a plantation in Brazil. Really exciting stories, and genuinely enthralling to young children, which I think explain why so many of us have such fond memories of the show. Now, I have to confess, I haven't read the original Robinson Crusoe novel, written by Daniel Defoe and based on a real-life shipwreck victim, Alexander Selkirk. But from what I understand, the TV series adaptation is reasonably faithful to the plot, which we'll return to in a moment. In the novel, Crusoe is on the island for 28 years, which is some going. So the period of his shipwreck portrayed in the TV series, I think, was much less than that. Throughout the series, Robinson Crusoe has, well, how can we describe it, various ups and downs. At one point, there's a fire in his cave and all of his belongings and handcrafted clothes and furniture go up in smoke and he's left with nothing and has to start again. But his dog, goat and parrot remain with him to keep him cheerful. He's also helped by another shipwreck which brings a ship to the beach, which happens to be full of provisions like sea biscuits and rum. You know, it's a bit dangerous, this Brazilian coastline, in my opinion. Anyway, after three years alone on the island, he constructed a calendar where he marked off the days, so he knew it was three years because he counted them on the wood. Well, you have to see it, really. Robinson has a celebratory banquet with his animal chums. As in, well, they are with him rather than being on the menu. And after that, he goes back onto the ship to drink more rum, after which he falls asleep and wakes up to find that the ship has refloated on the tide and drifted away from his island. Well, we've all done it, haven't we? Too much to drink, and then you drop off, awaking only to find you've drifted away from your desert island. Fortunately, the ship floats to another island, but unfortunately for Robinson Crusoe, it's an island which is used by cannibals to eat their prisoners. Just shows what trouble alcohol can get you into if you're not careful. 
I do remember the cannibals were pretty frightening, and Crusoe rather sensibly avoids dealing with them face to face, but does manage to rescue one of their intended main courses and befriends him, calling him Friday after the day of the week in which he was found, and taking him back to the island and teaching him to speak English. Friday also teaches him a lot of useful things, and they get along just fine until Robinson starts to treat him more like a manservant rather than a friend, and Friday, obviously not very happy with this, runs away. Robinson Crusoe learns a big lesson about respect. Oh, and in one of the saddest parts of the series, Dick the dog, now quite elderly, passes away and is buried on the island. It all ends up happily with Friday, though, as he returns, and they agree to treat each other with respect. The final episode sees the island visited by pirates who've led a mutiny on board an English ship, and, although fearful for their lives, Friday and Crusoe outwit the pirates and end up, well, blowing most of them up, I seem to remember. You see, it was quite violent, wasn't it? After defeating the evil pirates, Crusoe and Friday sail back to England, where Robinson Crusoe reclaims his riches and they begin to write their tale. And it all comes to a close with Robinson Crusoe wondering what had happened to the island, what was happening to his cave, and remembering his dog's grave. Lovely stuff. Now, I don't know about you, but it did take me several school holidays to actually see the final episode, as the BBC children's holiday shows often ran on after I'd gone back to school. I suppose they were probably scheduled around London school holidays, with it being the BBC and all, or is that just my northern bias coming out? But it did mean that I don't think I ever saw the final episode of yet another holiday fixture, The Flashing Blade. But that's another story. The Adventures of Robinson Crusoe is, for me, the archetypal 70s children's holiday TV memory. No matter who you speak to of a certain age, everybody remembers it and can sing the theme tune if asked. Is it because the drama was first class? Not really, although it was pretty gripping and exciting. No, I think why it's proved to be such a strong memory is that because it was shown so many times over such a long period, it's a poignant reminder of the freedom of school holidays. After all, kids' programmes were probably on for what, an hour and a half in the morning? Leaving the rest of the day to be outside, to play, to enjoy the long, seemingly endless summer days. As I said earlier, just hearing that theme tune transports me back to that time, and it never fails to make me smile. I'd love to hear your memories of watching Robinson Crusoe or The Flashing Blade or any of the other regular children's holiday shows. And can you remember of the fixtures on the programme like Hershey's Adventures of Tintin or the uh, the Czech cartoon of the Mole or any of the other Eastern European imports that we watched then? If so, or if you have anything else at all you want to share on this or any of the other episodes of our podcast, then get in touch. You can find our blog at www.my70stvchildhood.com. We're on Facebook and YouTube at My70stvchildhood, 
and you can tweet at 70s TV Childhood. Or you can just simply email me, oliver at my70stvchildhood.com. And don't forget our corrections and confessions feature. So that's about it for now. So thanks again for listening. Remember to subscribe and rate us on your podcast provider. And most of all, if you enjoy listening, tell your friends. Join me again soon for more from My 70s TV Childhood.